Hello, and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. Oh, fuck off, <laughs> Bethan. Oh, um, and I'm Mark. Thank you for joining us once again. And a huge thank you to our new Patreon supporters over the past week. So we have Hayes Selby D, Grace Hodgkin, Lauren Brown, and a huge thanks to Sabina Carr, who edited her pledge. If you'd like to support us in this way as well, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. And you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube by searching for Seeing Red the Podcast. And Bethan has been a busy little bee uh, uploading our back catalogue to YouTube, which I think we've pretty much done that now. Most of the episodes are up there. Um, So I think you've been uploading them on a daily basis. So um, do check out our YouTube channel. We've got um, some massive plans for that channel and uh, we're going to be doing some live Q&As. We're going to have all sorts of videos of us chatting random stuff, some of it true crime, some of it uh, other topical stuff so um yeah watch this space it's true we're just going to talk a bit of nonsense and upload some more things really for you guys so please do go check it out and we'd also love it if you'd subscribe to us on there as well because then you'll be notified when we release new videos now today's case may be familiar to some of you We actually covered this back in season one, but Bethan fucked it up. So uh, she got herself confused uh, with where we lived and where the victim lived, where this crime took place uh, and what the UK actually fucking was. So uh, we've had to redo it. I'm so embarrassed still by my horrific geography. But we have always said this story was one we felt needed to be shared, which is why we've carried on uh, with releasing it back then, even though we knew that we'd made that mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the episode continued to annoy lots of people. Uh, people did get in touch with us, um, many of whom told us that the story was from outside of the UK. Yes. So we have now gotten rid of that episode from when it was Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. But we really wanted to make sure we re-recorded it. And actually, this has kind of worked out for the better because there have been some new parts to the case recently. And so we can tell you the story again, but with some added extra parts as well. So tune in today and Friday for a case that was suggested over a year ago now by Susie's 1972, the tragic tale of Elaine O'Hara. So this case focuses on the world of a BDSM sexual relationship, which was quite a new side of things for us at the beginning of our podcasting career. But I don't know if it's something we've covered since then either. Um, It's also not a mystery case because there has been a conviction. Um, However, the person named as responsible still claims that they are innocent. So um, we'll have a discussion again to see if we agree with the jury or not. So the person I am going to tell you about was convicted of Elaine's murder. So Elaine O'Hara was born in Dublin on the 17th of March 1976 and went to school at the St. Joseph of Clooney School where she was bullied because she was just a bit different to her peers. She was dyslexic and also suffered from asthma and diabetes. In her teens, she suffered from a number of mental health issues and was being treated by Professor Anthony Clare for depression and borderline personality disorder. It's been noted online that her mother's death in 2002 and then the death of this beloved doctor in 2007 had lasting effects on Elaine. Clearly, this was a woman in an incredibly vulnerable position. So in 2005, at the age of 29, Elaine moved into a flat of her own before taking advantage of an affordable housing scheme the following year that meant she could move into an apartment in Stepperside, which is about an hour's drive from where she was born. 
She worked part-time in a newsagent in BlackRock and also worked as a childcare assistant in Ballybrack. She volunteered and near the time of her disappearance, she was taking night classes in the hope of becoming a Montessori teacher. Um, so did you or did you not know what this was at the time? I can't remember. I did. I was just going to say I remember us having quite a detailed conversation at the time. So um, yeah, I did know what it was because my dad went to a Montessori school and basically it's a school where they kind of let the kids come up with the rules or there kind of are no rules. So kids decide when to learn, what they want to learn and how to learn. So they dictate and kind of like if they don't want to learn, they just don't bother. Uh, so it's a really, really weird concept. And my dad went to this school until he was about seven or eight. Um, and my nan, his mum, found him just kind of wandering around town at like 11 o'clock in the morning one day. Oh my I was God. like, why aren't you at school? And he was like, a, like I was there and they just let me go out and about. And then she put him into a proper school. So yeah, I don't know whether we have them now, but they're very, uh, yeah, unusual way of learning, I guess. See, that's so interesting because I'd completely forgotten about this until I started reading my script from beginning of the show. But, um, I quite like the idea of allowing the children to kind of learn because it's through play as well, isn't it? So you can just play with things, but you're learning in the same at the same time. And I quite like it, but that is really bad that your dad was just wandering around. <laughs> I mean, these, I mean, that would have been back in the 60s, I guess. So these days, it's probably, if they do exist, they're probably done quite well. And I'm mm. all for people being able to learn in a style which relates to them. Yeah, you know, that's best. so true. And, I don't think comprehensives and, you know, any kind of state school necessarily has the right answer because you can't have a one size fits all approach to every single student. They're all different. They're all mm. unique. So, um, so yeah, I would, I wouldn't rule it, rule it out for, you know, a, a child in this day and age. I think it's probably we're more equipped for it as a society. Mm. We're more, uh, kind of diverse in our thinking around things like education. Yeah. So there we go. I, I couldn't remember what you said last time. So that's quite interesting. And this case feels like years ago that we actually covered it, even though it was probably about a year and a half at the absolute most. And I, although like I knew the name and I knew that we'd covered it and I knew we'd had all these problems with it and we eventually did decide to take it down after the one millionth person contacted us about it um we we did the right thing actually we both felt it was the right mm, thing we took it down yeah. um but i'd actually you know i had forgotten about elaine and who she was and what happened to her and that's why we kept the episode up for as long as we could because it was such an important story and i may have said it last time i might not have but she kind of reminds me of eleanor oliphant from the novel eleanor oliphant is completely fine no because you hadn't read that before hadn't i yeah, you read that book after this case after we so recorded it's so this. interesting now when i think about elaine o'hara she reminds me of eleanor which is a character in a book who uh you know shares some similar characteristics i guess that that sort of naive mm. view of the world do you know what? i still haven't read that and you did tell me that you thought i should i think that is something kind of touched on that you said so many people got in touch with us we kept this case up as an episode because we felt like elaine's story was really important we weren't trying to you know downplay anything that's happened in the history of the countries included or you know try and do anything to be disrespectful to anybody's culture I just 
forgot where in the world anything was. You know, it was an honest mistake and we apologised at the time, but ultimately we felt it was more important to keep Elaine's story out there. But yeah. at the end of the day, we conceded that we would take it down. But equally, we knew we would have to revisit this case. This isn't just a retelling. This is a, a revisit to that uh, particular story because we have a lot of information that we didn't necessarily have access to last time. Mm-hmm. So all in all, Elaine sounds like a slightly vulnerable but very kind-hearted woman. And when you look at the photos of her, she just seems, for want of a better word, ordinary. And she just looks quite nice. And I think you agree with, agreed with me at the time, she just looks like a normal lady. So on the 22nd of August 2012, 36-year-old Elaine went missing. So her dad reported her missing and at first it was just assumed that she disappeared while volunteering at the tall ships races. But because she'd left her purse and bag and mobile phone inside her house, the police did take this seriously and they began to track her movements. Footage showed her leaving her home and her green Fiat Punto was missing. She was last seen leaving the Bellamine Plaza in Stepperside at around 5.05pm and she was sighted at about 6.15 the same evening near a footbridge by a jogger. And that footbridge crosses the railway at Shagana Park. I always said this wrong. Shanaha? Oh, for fuck's sake. Shanaha, is it? I can't remember now. I think it's Shanaha Didn't you just Park. call it like Shagaha? I think I called it Shagana Park the first time and I was, was really it. embarrassed. Yeah. Shanaha yeah. Park. Shanaha, yeah, sounds right, yeah. So Elaine was wearing a blue jacket and jeans and she was described in the media as a brunette with medium length hair, a stocky build and five foot three. So witness statements kind of said that a woman was heard crying loudly in the cemetery, which was where Elaine's mother had been buried. And another witness said that they saw someone who matched Elaine's description sobbing by an old grave. Um, and then that jogger that I mentioned before is Connor Guilfoyle. I think that's how you say his name. Um, he's now known to be the last person who saw Elaine alive, aside from her killer. So he was jogging around Shanahar Park on August the 22nd, 2012, when he actually spoke briefly with Elaine. She'd stopped him to ask for directions. He said, she asked me, was there a bridge over there? or something to that effect. And I said, yes, there's a bridge just over there for the railway. One of the reasons I remember her was because she didn't say thank you or have any engagement with me. That was the end of the conversation. And then this guy, Connor, carries on. I met her again on the footbridge. She was ahead of me. I would have come up behind her. She was walking towards the seafront. And I was thinking of saying to her, well, you found the bridge okay. But again, she just didn't seem to want to engage in conversation. A few days after meeting Elaine, Connor was approached by a guarder while jogging at the same spot and he was shown a photograph of her as part of the missing persons inquiry that had just been launched. He said he remembered meeting Elaine in the park, but he couldn't recall when. However, he quickly realised he'd been using an app called Map My Run on the day in question, so that would have the date and the time recorded. So I thought that was really interesting that actually they were able to really pinpoint that because of his app data. So on the 10th of September, news reports were released requesting the public's assistance in finding the missing woman. And one article read, 
Garda have renewed their appeal for information regarding the whereabouts of a woman who has been missing since the 22nd of August. She is described as being 5 foot 4 inches of height, of stocky build with brown hair, and when last seen she was wearing jeans, runners and a blue jacket or jumper. Anyone with information is asked to contact any Garda station. Elaine's car was then found near to Killikey Mountain and it was assumed that she had committed suicide by jumping off the cliffs which wasn't too much of a stretch to imagine seeing as it was the 10 year anniversary of her mother's death and she had suffered with mental health issues. She had a history of self-harm and had in fact been recently discharged from a psychiatric hospital and she'd been in there because of a suicide attempt. So really sadly, the idea that Elaine O'Hara jumped off the cliff to her death was pretty believable. And that, at least for the police and Elaine's dad and her friends, was that. Until, however, the following year, when on the 10th of September 2013, three men out fishing spotted a bag lying in the water in Vartry Reservoir near Roundwood, County Wicklow. William Fegan, his brother and another man, opened up the bundle and inside they found it contained handcuffs, clothing, a ball gag, restraints and leg restraints. They decided to take this to the local police station in Roundwood. So this was quite a lucky sort of find because it was an unusually hot summer and this meant the water level was incredibly low so it was 12 inches rather than the usual 15 foot So the bag, which would previously have just been underwater, was visible. And then the police searched the area and they also found handcuffs, keys, a leather mask, a knife, an inhaler and a chain with a keyring on it. The water unit searched the lake on the 17th of September and the 7th of October and they found two Nokia mobile phones, two mobile phone batteries, a pair of glasses, a pair of sunglasses as well as a rucksack. And a lot of the items pointed to Elaine. So a number on the frame of the glasses matched records for Elaine's Specsavers prescription. And a loyalty card attached to the keyring was also identified as Elaine's. And it was from a Dunn's Stores, which I remember you you quite liked Dunn's the link. Dunn's Stores. I remember. I, I know of Dunn's mm. Stores, yeah, from Ireland. Yeah. yeah. So this was such a lucky find, to be honest, because if the water level had stayed how it was, I don't know how long this would have been in the water and it may have been completely damaged beyond recognizing what the things were i don't know i was just going to say that it's really unusual for anything like that to be recovered accidentally from Mm -hmm. a lake um so that is quite interesting normally if you have done something wrong and you're disposing of some evidence in a body of water like that you you can be pretty safe pretty sure that it's not going to resurface again or if it does like you say it will be a long time afterwards and it will just kind of be decayed so it would be of no use so this was quite unlucky for the perpetrator really and i think that's something that's come up time and time again with this is there's been lots of um little things that if they hadn't happened for example that jogger if he didn't have map my run on he might not have had the time stamp and stuff so there's loads of little things that if they hadn't happened there wouldn't have been so much evidence so at the same time over in wooded land near Killikey in the foothills of the Dublin mountains Magali Verne's dogs were making gruesome discoveries too Starting on around the 21st of August, the dogs had been bringing her back bones. She just assumed that they were animal bones, but on the 13th of September, the bones were accompanied by clothing fragments. So, very worried, she contacted the landowner, Frank Doyle, to say she thought there might be human remains on his land. 
So Frank, Magdalene and another man found the scattered and gnawed bones, including the remains of a rib cage and a jawbone in the clearing. And realising that these remains were indeed human, they contacted the guardian and the body was identified as Elaine's through her dental records. They were able to recover 65% of her skeleton. So uh, I'm guessing other animals had kind of taken off with bits and bobs. Yeah. So on the 17th of September, there was a newspaper article published which confirmed that the remains were of Elaine O'Hara and that the police were trying to establish how she got to Killikey Mountain, which is about 15 kilometres from where she was last seen alive. And the police began looking into Elaine's life and disappearance again, and they discovered the visits that Elaine had made to a fetish adult sex website, alt.com, in late 2007. She had accessed the site under the profile name Help Me Learn 36 forward slash F, and had viewed the profile of Architect72, which was linked to a Gmail address named Fetish Boy, and then the police linked this to a man called Graham Dwyer. He was an architect. And naturally, this was someone they were interested in talking to, because it wasn't someone they'd been aware of before, when they were looking at Elaine's disappearance when she'd first gone missing. And also, if you put two and two together, you've got uh, Elaine's clear interest in fetishism um, and this guy as well. And then with some of the evidence that was recovered, it was like ball gags and, you know, all kind of fetish type mm-hmm. stuff. So there is a real clear link there, isn't Absolutely. there? Absolutely. Her set of keys, her glasses, and then certain things like handcuffs and leather masks and stuff. So, Graham Dwyer was born in County Cork on the 13th of September, 1972. He moved to Dublin in the 90s, where he began a relationship with Emma O'Shea, and the couple had a child together. They broke up in 1996, and Graham started dating Gemma Healy the following year. By all accounts, these relationships were pretty standard, although Emma has since said that Graham once confided to her that he fantasised about stabbing a woman during sex and that he started to bring a kitchen knife into their bedroom when they were making love. So he never tried to stab her, and she said it was just enough for him to have the knife on the floor by the bed. But by the time their relationship ended a year later, he was holding it in his hand during sex. So Graham and Gemma got married in 2002, and five years later they moved to Fox Rock. Graham's career as an architect took off and he was soon a successful director of A&D, Weish Hart and Partners Architects. He was involved in a range of major developments in the UK and also in Poland. His hobbies included flying radio-controlled aircraft and driving luxury cars, like you, Mark. Mm. Yours is nice, isn't it? Does it not count as luxury? It's fairly it's fairly luxurious, but in a very standard way. <laughs> With a McDonald's wrapper on the passenger side. <laughs> Wonder how that got in there. Oh. Must have been the valet guy. Yeah, probably. So while his wife Gemma, um, she enjoyed sailing. Um so the pair of them had, you know, some hobbies and a quite a very fancy middle life. Class. Yeah. However, according to information disclosed during police interviews, the couple's finances weren't actually that great. So Graham had told them, I was deeply in debt. We had good prospects in 2007. We had a cottage, bought the house in Fox Rock to renovate, and then the crash happened. Gemma lost her job and I had huge pay cuts. And so by 2012, when Elaine was killed, they were in financial difficulty. 
Graham and Gemma were out at a Mexican restaurant celebrating their joint birthdays on the day that Elaine's bones were found. They didn't realise that within just weeks their lives would be turned upside down and things would never be the same again. Just five weeks later, Graham was arrested on suspicion of murder. When he was interviewed, Graham denied knowing Elaine. And to the police, whilst his background suggested nothing noteworthy and he had no previous criminal history, this denial, which was so easily proven wrong, was a big worry and it was such a red flag for them. One morning, the police swarmed the family home in Fox Rock, even searching through the children's bedrooms, and the evidence from Elaine's phone and laptop had led to warrants to search the whole house. Violent homemade sex videos showing Graham pretending to stab tied-up sexual partners were recovered from his laptop, and these not only featured Elaine, but also loads of other women, many of whom were blindfolded, so they may not have known that they were being filmed and Graham described these women as slaves. It was actually in the papers that police wanted to try and find these women to check that they were okay, and there were requests for the public to contact the police if they knew anything. The police found evidence that linked the pair in the form of security footage at Elaine's house, and it was actually Gemma, the wife, who confirmed that the man in the CCTV was Graham. When she testified against him in court, she has been described as speaking strongly and confidently, identifying him in the CCTV stills taken from the plaza where Elaine lived. And they were also linked, I hate this, they linked the pair from the presence of semen in Elaine's bed. You just don't like semen or talk of semen. I just don't like the discussions. And too many of our cases seem to include this evidence. I think what's worse is is when we've got people like drinking their own urine, which we've had nearly as often. And yeah, that makes us sick. Mm Mm-hmm. So it soon became apparent that Elaine and Graham had met sometime in 2007 through the fetish website and had begun a sexual relationship that carried on into 2008. At this point, they seemed to have drifted apart. But in 2011, Graham got back in touch with Elaine and rekindled their relationship. The relationship has been described as very intense and it involved homemade sex tapes that were violent and graphic email exchanges. It was a relationship filled with violence, with Graham's rape and murder fantasies being front and centre of their exchanges. And really sadly, however, it kind of appeared that Elaine was less into the kinky stuff and actually she just really wanted love, companionship, and in fact she just really wanted a baby. Oh, that just that's heartbreaking, isn't mm-hmm. it? That breaks my heart. That it's almost like, you know, she'd found a guy and um the only way to get his love was by being submissive to all of these crazy demands that he had associated with this kind of BDSM. So she wasn't really into it, but she just went along with it just because she needed somebody to love her. Yeah. And wanted a baby. I know. It's horrible. It was like she didn't know how to find love traditionally in the traditional sense so she'd become his submissive and she was even opening up to her friends um about things like this because I think she must have felt a bit unsure however what we will what I do have to say is she is an adult and her username was help me to learn so she can't have been completely in the dark about what was about to happen that's true, and we um we know that she was vulnerable, but does that mean that she was incapable of actually having an, a genuine interest in in that kind of sexual area? It doesn't. So we yeah we can't really kind of say well she should be quote unquote normal and not into that. Mm-hmm. You know she she's her own person still. 
And I think anyway, even if this is your sexual fantasy, shouldn't be killed. So it almost doesn't even matter. Yeah, you're right. Of course. Yeah. yeah, it's such an odd one. But at the same time, I do feel like she's almost taken advantage of a little here. And the fact that she wanted to have a child and just wanted love, it just makes me feel so sad for her. Yeah, and he could have been promising her love and a child and all of the above. Mm-hmm. So throughout the police interviews, Graham said he wanted to protect his wife and preserve his marriage. But strangely enough, she didn't want to stick by him. I guess it's one thing to find out your husband's been cheating, but to find out he had slaves is another. So Gemma did not stand by him. So one quote of what he said to the police was, I'm a very lucky man and I want to keep it. I want to keep Gemma. I'd like to preserve my marriage. Thank you very much. So there's no, there's not really any way to determine whether Elaine had been killed because her autopsy was inconclusive. She was found as a skeleton and no murder weapon had been recovered. There was no DNA evidence pointing to Graham being there in her last moments. That There's no definite evidence that she was murdered. However, the police soon built up a case which while circumstantial, ultimately proved to the jury beyond reasonable doubt that Graham was responsible for Elaine's death. And so I know we had a lot of discussions last time about whether we would agree with that jury or not, and I wonder if we still would. So at the trial, the court were read out numerous text messages that the police said had been sent between Graham and Elaine. The text referred to Graham as the master or sir and Elaine as the slave. And overall, there were 2,600 text messages found that were filled with rape and murder fantasies. The police said that Graham had phones with the number 083 at the beginning and 086 at the beginning. Graham tried to say that these weren't his phones whatsoever and the messages hadn't been sent by him. But it was quite obvious that he had sent them um, based on things like the way he would write and some of the messages that he would send would include details about that only Graham would really talk about. So it's kind of quite obvious that they were from him. See, I think that that really is circumstantial because I don't know, that could almost be twisted. It's just not hard enough for me to be brought into trial. It is a difficult one, but it was kind of like he'd be in certain places and those phones would be there uh, as well. Because, okay. I mean, I'm guessing they were like burner phones, which we've come across before. Mm-hmm. I think the um, murder of Stuart Ludlam, the uh, motiveless murder that we discussed in season two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his, uh, the guy that murdered him bought a burner phone from like Morrison's or something. But weirdly, they were able to kind of track it back uh, through looking at his credit card statement. They could see that he'd uh, been into Morrison's at this particular time and yeah. he bought a top up. Because didn't he pay by cash and they were looking for just the phone, but then they looked for the fuel at the same time or something, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and he'd bought a top up at the same time as buying the fuel and they could then kind of cross-reference the time, the date and yeah. look at CCTV and they could see him pretty much buying the phone. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, may, I just sort of think maybe if they'd worked a bit harder or been a bit more lucky, perhaps, uh, the detectives in this case could have traced those phones directly to, to him. Mm-hmm. However, like you say, it's not just the fact that what he's kind of typing in the messages is similar to the kind of language that he uses. It's a fact that they've pinged at the same place where he was at that time. So I do get it. Mm. That does sound more substantial. It is a difficult one, though, because these phone records are one of the main areas where he's appealing that they shouldn't have been used. And it's kind of like a breach of his 
privacy and his human rights. And so without these messages, it's quite difficult to know what else there would have been of the case. So some of the messages, some examples of the sort of stuff he would say to her are, if you ever want to die, promise me you'll let me do it. My urge to rape, stab or kill is huge. You have to help me control it or satisfy it. And I want to stick my knife in flesh while I am sexually aroused. I would like to stab a girl to death sometime. So that's just like a few of them. And they're really chilling. The messages are quite harrowing. Like receiving stuff like that must have been horrible. And I also think that real close tie between sex and violence yeah we see that loads don't we we see Mm -hmm. it in lots of different cases but to hear it explained from the murderer's perspective is quite unusual yeah so you know to sort of stick a knife into your flesh while i'm sexually aroused Mm -hmm. oh yeah it's just horrible to think of and it wasn't just things like his um sexual fantasies one message that he sent well a message that elaine received um that was when she was hospitalized and she'd been hospitalized for because she tried to commit suicide and the message read you must be punished for trying to kill yourself without me and this was just a couple of weeks before elaine went missing another text message that the police found said how graham would be able to kill elaine using chloroform or sleeping tablets to ensure that it was painless for her So Graham had clearly used Elaine's low self-esteem to manipulate her. The messages kind of showed that she wasn't a willing participant in the sexual violence. She repeatedly said she didn't want to be stabbed or beaten by Graham. And in some of the videos that were found, Elaine was seen sobbing and crying for him to stop and begging him. But according to Graham, this was all part of the act and the games. I don't personally believe him whatsoever, but I suppose it could have been part of we're going to be acting on the film. Mm, and again, it can be twisted mm-hmm. um, by the defence in in the court case. But that's really sad because it is most likely that Elaine was genuinely sobbing and begging him to stop. Yeah. And she meant that. But, you know, that the jury having to see that and it, that's true. That's how she felt. And he was just carrying on however he wanted to. Mm-hmm. The court heard a victim impact statement from Elaine's family, which said it was heartbreaking for us to listen to the text Elaine received from a depraved and diseased mind. The manipulation of her vulnerability was apparent. And when she tried to resist, she was reined back in. We can hear her voice in those texts, just wanting to be loved. Hearing the contents of the videos will haunt us forever. This is our life sentence. For us, there is no parole. So the mobile phone and the text messages were this key part of the prosecution's case and Graham still says to this day that the phone was not his. However, the way the messages were written matched his style of texting and the police were convinced that they were his. Some of the things that discussed in the messages matched up to his life and a lot of the themes that were repeated within his actual laptop and his phones and things that he would, he'd admitted were his, did match up with the phone as well. So there's it is all circumstantial, but it's it's kind of drawing the net a little bit closer. And it's almost like there are, you know, there's always going to be certain coincidences and they're just that. But sometimes when there's so many coincidences, it's actually, no, this, this wouldn't, the odds of all of those being coincidences are too high. It, you know, some of it is going to be true. Yeah, exactly. So Elaine had asked Graham to collar her, which is the fetish version of putting a ring on it. 
and she really felt like she was special to him. It's just so sad. She approached him asking to get her pregnant so that she could have the baby that she so longed for. But Graham twisted this into something horrible as well, asking would she help him to kill someone. So his text message response to her requesting for him to give her a baby read, Okay, a life for a life. Help me to take one and I will give you one. So someone who gave evidence at the trial was Darcy Day, an American woman that the police tracked down in Maine after finding a document on Graham's hard drive, which was entitled Killing Darcy, in which he not only wrote about wanting to kill the young woman, but he'd also photoshopped photos of her to look like he'd killed her. They had met online in 2010 and communicated for roughly two years. And similarly to Elaine, Graham preyed on Darcy's suicidal thoughts and her history of self-harm he tried very nearly successfully to convince her to kill herself. He also told her that he wanted to have sex with her before cutting her throat, and the photoshopped image that the police found showed exactly this wound. He wrote about her, beautiful, young, smart, and clear about what she wanted, and critically, wanting to die the same way I wanted to kill. He also wrote, having been responsible for creating three lives, wasn't I entitled to just take one? Oh, God, what? how fucked up is this guy? Mm-hmm. And at another point, he said he considered taking a life in exchange for an orgasm, wanting to make a video clip that he could watch into his old age. So Ms. Day testified against Dwyer via a video link, and her evidence was initially deemed inadmissible until the trial judge was made aware that Graham had managed to obtain her home address just a month before going on trial and had sent her a Christmas card. So in this, he was protesting his innocence of murder, saying he was being blamed for a suicide and there was no evidence against him, wishing her and her dog Bruno a very happy Christmas. So the judge agreed, actually, we'll let her testify. So during her evidence, she said, quote, He did mention Elaine O'Hara. I knew they had had an intimate relationship and he told me she was similar to me and was suicidal. He said he used to cut her in the stomach area and stuff, that it was mutual and sexual. I believe she had asked him to kill her in the past. His fantasy was basically wanting to stab a woman to death. And she also said that Graham had talked about wanting to kill Elaine. She said later that the murder trial had made her realise how precious life is and she is now a Christian who works to assist those suffering from depression and suicidal thoughts and she's even been reported as saying she has actually forgiven Graham now for what he did to her. So Graham had always mentioned wanting to stab Elaine and other women too and he asked numerous times for her to find him someone to stab. Another message that the police found contained Graham saying Elaine had a big punishment coming up. And these messages were just before she'd um, gone missing, before she died. So he instructed her to leave her phone at home, park her car in Shanahar Park and make her way over the railway bridge and then wait. And this was where Elaine was last seen by that jogger. So luckily that he'd had his cell site data and his um, my run footage on, they were then able to kind of link exactly the details from that text message to show that Elaine had been following those instructions. And that was kind of the, what the prosecution said. Whoever her killer was had told her to go there and that's when they'd killed her. That is quite damning, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And this jogger's um, information really put that together, that she'd followed those instructions step by step. So... 
The prosecution made the case to the court and the jury at this point that Graham had met her there and killed her and knew that if her body was found, suicide would be the most obvious conclusion. Sean Guerin, the senior counsel for prosecuting, said that the evidence pointed to a detailed plan by Graham Dwyer to commit and get away with murder and the fact that Graham had attempted to hide his links to Elaine and her personal belongings had been thrown away into that reservoir. It was just more of an indication of his guilt and Graham continued to deny his involvement in Elaine's death. So this is where we're going to end today's episode. Join us next time when we will look at Graham Dwyer's defence, the outcome of his trial, as well as some new developments that took place just weeks ago. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Bye. Bye.